Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. So good to be back. So good to be back and delve into a new part of the scripture today. So um, we're going to be looking into Yochanan Aleph or 1st John. In fact, we're going to go into all of the epistles of John, Yochanan in the Hebrew. And I truly believe that this is just an anointed time of Yahuwah that we have been led to go into this study because there is no more pressing a time to address and expose those who have gone out from us into Messianic Judaism, Levitical hierarchy, Kabbalah, numerology, and the esoteric wisdom of men. And even a few have decided to now begin teaching a perverted form of the Malkitzedic message. So what are we delving into as we go into this Yochanan communique, the epistles of John? It's about 600 manuscripts in part or as a whole, including two papyri that were found within the great codices of the 4th and 5th centuries of the Common Era. We have them found within Sinaiticus, Vaticanus, Alexandrius, Ephraimae, Receptus. And there's very little text-critical problems in all three of the books, which is fabulous. There's variance in only some 39 junctures. Interestingly, they're actually missing from Codex Bizet because the 67 sheets went missing right after the Council of the Nicaea. Those funky monks that went out from us and decided to attach to Constantine. So it's always been going on. Those that went out from us and departed from the orthodoxy belief. And we're even seeing that now with people teaching perversions, variants of the Malkitzedic message. So this communique, I am convinced and convicted, and I'm sure you will be too, this communique is for today. It is for us today, his people, because I am sweeping the messianic stable with an iron broom. And I am not going to be intimidated by the Levitical jockey whip. I'm not. I'm not. I mean, I'm being texted by these people. I've had to block one. It's outrageous. We are in this third prophetic wheel. That first prophetic wheel was that when Israel was at Kadesh Barnea. And that second prophetic wheel was right before the destruction of the temple in 70 of the common era. And we are seeing that we are that third prophetic wheel. And it is the prophecies now are moving because we're coming, I believe, into these very last days. We're dealing with the synagogue of Satan, and it's in our very midst, our very midst. In chapter 2, verse 19, these words are very telling. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, brethren, 
they would have continued to stay with us in the orthodoxy of what's being taught. But they went out so we'd know who they were. And in our day, we've named them and we've claimed them. And they're the synagogue of Satan. And you know, I know you're going to get the knee-jerk reaction. Well, he's so unloving. And you're going to bring up the love command of chapter 2, verse 10. And you're going to try and leverage it and say, well, Matthew's not very loving to the brethren. He who loves his brother stays in the light. And there is no cause for stumbling in him. You can't thrust your Western liberal timidness couched in love. You just can't do that to me and expect me to back down because it's not going to happen. And that's what happens. Well, you, you're not being very loving by, by saying this. But I'm calling out falsehood. We're calling out deception as a ministry. And we're not going to be intimidated for fear of offending people because you want to have this unity within the community. I mean, unity for unity's sake? No way. Yochanan wasn't interested in unity for unity's sake. But that's always thrust at you with the love command. But it's not so. You see, the boundaries today, brethren, the boundaries are being more tightly cinched and drawn together. Because we are in the last days. And Yahweh is the one who's drawing and cinching those boundaries tighter together. You see, the time for loosey-goosey is over. I mean, you've got like Hebrew, you've got Hebrew Nation Radio. Talk about loosey-goosey. They will let anybody on that radio station, case in point, they even actually let me on once upon a time, but they'd only play my stuff, which was like 10 or 12 years old, when it was, you know, with the party line. But they even kicked off. One group of people was that paradigm shift because they decided to play a Torah to the tribe's teaching that wasn't politically correct or expedient for their Jewish donors in Israel. So they're gone. Yet they've got all these loosey-goosey teachers that deny Yeshua as Messiah. That's fine to have them being broadcast. But you broadcast truth and you're off. But it's okay if you don't believe Messiah and you're doing some unity for the community. That's outrageous to me. What do we stand on? If we don't stand on Messiah, then we're all sunk. We're all sunk. We've got to have some standard of drawing things tightly together. So the time for that loosey-goosey with no discernment and a smorgasbord of teachers is over. In fact, Yochanan, he addresses something that's very important, reformulation. And it's accepted in the first century, reformulation. You see, Yochanan Aleph addresses the schismatics concerning the reconstitution or the reformulation of Christology. What do I mean? What do I mean? He reformulates Christology because Judaism at the time believed in a singular, as they still do today, singular monotheism. 
But the communique of Yochanan deals with what? Plural echad monotheism. So there was a reformulation of how you would approach monotheism. No longer from singular monotheism, but from approaching it from the Deuteronomy 6.4, the Shema, the Echad, plural monotheism. And that was embraced in the first century. Yochanan brings forth this reformulation. And today, today, the Hebrew roots and Christian community, they have no problem with this reformulation. They've embraced, in fact, what? Plural monotheism. Yes, I understand that in a Christian church it's been Greco-Romanized and you've got the Trinity, but it's still plural monotheism. We, in the Hebrew roots or the Messianic movement, embrace it as the Echad. It's still plural monotheism, whereas Judaism today is still bent on singular monotheism, which is actually in contradiction to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. So there was no problem and is no problem today with the church or Hebrew Roots movement embracing reformulation, is there? They've done it. No problem. Yet, when you try and bring forth the scripture and bring forth a reformulation of the priesthood, oh, heavens forbid, that's outrageous. Well, hang on a minute. Equal weights and measures, you embrace the reformulation of monotheism, but you can't even delve into the reformulation of the priesthood. You can't embrace or even delve into the reformulation of the book of the law and the book of the covenant. I don't understand that. Because scripture is about reformulation in light of Yahusha. If you can't understand that, then go back to singular monotheism. You embrace that in light of Yahusha into plural monotheism. Well, why wouldn't you embrace a reformulation of the priesthood in light of the Kohen Haggadal after the order of Melchizedek? But you start teaching it and you're an outcast. You're banned. You're thrown out of places. You see, it doesn't make sense. It's not consistent. Those that had departed were already bewitching and bothering the congregation. And those that have departed today have been bewitching and bothering Brother John and Steve. And they guard me from a lot of it. Thank you, brothers. (laughs) Yes, you guys, you need some thicker armor, don't you? (laughs) But Yochanan's polemic, polemic is a a fancy word for he's having a rant. He really is. Yochanan's rant, his polemic, is political, it's pastoral, and it's practically driven. Just as my rant, polemic, today, with the Malkizedek is political, it's pastoral, And it's practically driven. It's practically driven. You see, the Yochanan polemic is based upon Yahuwah's love revealed in the son's death and Yahuwah's life present in the believing community. 
Because Herodian Jews, Herodian Jews had gone out from them and they were clearly adversaries of the gospel, were they not? That's what this epistle is about. But today, we're in that third prophetic wheel. And that's why I'm so excited to teach this and do the introduction. Did I tell you that this was the introduction today? I don't know if I did. Yochanan Olive. This is just the introduction. Today, it's no different. Because the Malkitzedic rant, I like that better than polemic, because some people are like, oh, he's up there ranting. Well, I do get into a bit of a rant, don't I? But if you were on the back end of Torah to the tribes and you saw what we were having to deal with, you'd rant a lot more than me. Brother actually commended me last night for staying calm as much as I do. And people were like, he does not stay calm. I really do in, in light of the things that are going on. But the Malkitzedic rant or polemic is based upon the same thing. Yahweh's love revealed in his son's high priestly ascension and Yahweh's life present in the priesthood and the community. It's the same thing. You see, we're finding, though, conversely, that there's these pseudo-Jews, these pseudo-Jews and these pseudo-Levites that are clearly adversaries to the gospel of Melchizedek. They have gone out from us and they have departed from the orthodoxy of the faith. And they are now denigrating Yahushua and his high priesthood in place of elevating their status, their blood, and their ministries. That's what we're dealing with, and it's going to end up at the abomination of desolation on Heimrichman's Temple Mount with ritual bloodletting. That's where it's going. And they're all going to trot right on up there with all of their ritual garb. It's outrageous. Yochanan does admonish us, though, does he not? In the second chapter, in the 28th verse. And now, little children, stay in him, so that when he appears, we have confidence and not being sent from his presence in shame. None of us need that, do we? We do not want to be sent from his presence in shame because of our behavior, because what we're espousing from the pulpit. No. So we do this in fear and trembling. If you know that he is Malkitzedek, you know that everyone who practices this zadakah is born of him, is born of him. The timing of this teaching, the timing of this teaching couldn't be more important because Yahweh is separating the sheep from the goats in the Hebrew roots and messianic movement. I mean, we had the separation when we were drawn out of the traditional institutionalized church. But now, you thought that was it. No, there is a further refining as now Yahweh for 30 years has put up with the compromise within the Hebrew roots and messianic movement that has been given so much rope, but now they are just gone more Levitical, more rabbinic. They're checking you at the door to see if you're circumcised. They're checking you at the door to see if you've got a head covering. They're checking you at the door to measure the length of your tassels. They're checking you at the door to see what kind of blood 
blood you've got to see whether you can be a member. And if you've got Jewish blood, which is phony anyway, they'll elevate you to some special status. And we're all called rabbi. I've got two rabbinical certificates back there, and I couldn't care less. And take my word for it. You can pull them off the wall and burn them for all I care. I don't care. It's not important. It is not important. But if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. As in the day of the rebellion, the first prophetic wheel. You see, there is a perverted and disingenuous form of the Malkizedic message that is being taught by a few. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they may be made manifest. And they've made themselves quite manifest. In fact, we're going to make them a lot more manifest right now. There is, that's nine, let's try eight. Eight points of authentication of the true Malkitzedic message. If someone's teaching you Malkitzedic, there's eight points to check if what they are saying is authentic. If it's not, then flee. Number one, the book of the covenant and the book of the law are not synonymous. Deuteronomy 31 verse 26. You see, They're trying to gain disciples after themselves through highbrow Hebrew language rhymes and reasoning. So the first authentication mark is the book of the covenant and the book of the law are not synonymous. If they teach that they're the same, then they're imposters. Number two, there has been a change of the law, Torah. Hebrews 7.12, Hebrews 7.18, and Bereshit, Genesis 49, verse 10. Number three, the rightly dividing point of that Torah, that law, is Shemot, Exodus 24, verse 11. We keep the covenant Torah from Bereshit 1.1 all the way through to Shemot, Exodus 24.11, We do not keep the maintenancing, added, imposed book of the law of carnal commandments that is against us. Meaning, you keep the Shabbats, the feasts of Yahuwah, the dietary requirements, and you live a Kadosh holy life. Ritual immersion and mikvahot, of course, are a part of that. Number four, the book of Ezekiel isn't millennial, but it's a collection of 13 date stamped scrolls. Number five, the fifth authenticating mark of the true Malkitzedic message. Yirmiyahu, Jeremiah 33 verse 17 speaks of the kingship and the Levitical conditional covenant promise outlined earlier in Melachim Aleph, 1 Kings chapter 9, 5, and Jeremiah chapter 22, verse 30. And did they break that conditional promise? Yes. Has there been a king on the throne in Jerusalem for the past 2,000 years? 
Has there been a Levitical priest reigning from Jerusalem for the last 2,000 years? Case and point. Thank you. Really? I mean, the arguments that you get, they're pathetic. And I know that I shouldn't speak like that, but they really are. They really are. I've put up with this nonsense for too long. So that's why I've taken the iron broom to the stable. Because it's time, and people are ready for it. They are so ready. We do not have time to waste doing this. You go gypsy dancing in um, Greece, okay? We'll get into the word of Yahuwah. Thank you. Crying out loud. Number six. There is an order of Malkizedic priests today on earth. Hebrews chapter 8 verse 4. You can't isolate this verse from the preceding seven chapters to make your Levitical point. It doesn't work. A text out of context creates a Pretext and error begets error as you walk up to the Temple Mount. And finally, well, almost finally, if we had seven, it would be finally, but we don't. We have eight, so it's actually not finally at all. Seven, the temple that the Temple Institute and the pseudo-Jews have planned will in fact be the abomination. Yahweh has chosen his temple, that's you guys, and his kingdom of Malkit-Zedek priests, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 10. You have to make that distinction. And then, finally, really finally this time, number eight, the eighth mark of authenticity. You cannot add to an already blood-ratified covenant. Exodus 24, verse 7, and Galatians 3.15. So, After the covenant-confirming meal and the blood ratification of Exodus 24, verse 7, can you add another law to that covenant? So when another law is added in Exodus 24, verse 12, can it be part of the book of the covenant, or is it the mark of separation of the added imposed book of the law? You see... We have to understand these things. But these are the eight marks of authenticity that you need to be aware of because they have gone out from us and they're trying to ride on the wave of the Malkitzedic message, but it's not authentic. It's a perversion. They're trying to make disciples after themselves and they're going to try and flash you with Paleo-Hebrew, with esoteric Strong's numbering systems and all kinds of numerology because they've got a Hebrew guy right there in their back pocket. No, that's not how it works. We can all delve into the word together, can we not? All of us. I don't have all the answers, but with the brethren together, we can search these things out to see if they are so. And that is the strength when we come together I facilitate and you communicate and we build and grow together as the house of Yahuwah. And that's why we are seeing such amazing things happen. And praise Yahuwah for that. What is this wonderful Yochanan communique? Well, in fact, it's the longest communique with 2,137 words. While Yochanan Bet, 2 John, only has 245 words. And Yochanan Gimel, 3 John, 
we're down to 219 words. So I'm really going to have a lot more to say with the first John than I will second and third. Making these last two, Yochanan Bet or Yochanan Gimel, the shortest manuscripts in the Brit Chadashah. In fact, they would have fit on one single papyri. One single sheet of papyrus. They were so short. What is the theme of this epistle? It was set during a time of dispute between believers involving composition, role, and relation. Now remember this. Write this down. I don't often tell you. I sound like John Corson when I say something like that. Write this down. Involving composition relation, and role. Involving composition, role, and relation. Because we're going to look at the theme then, and then we're going to look at the theme of what we're dealing with today. And it's going to be the same. It's going to be the same. And this is what is inspiring and so exciting to be living in this generation. That I can read the scriptures and I can see, oh my goodness, we are that generation. What was happening back then? This was set during a time of dispute between believers involving theological and behavioral concerns, which include the person of Messiah, the composition of Messiah, the role of the Ruach in the community, and believers' relation to perfection, atonement, and Christology. That's what was happening then. And look what's happening now. Your life, my life, is set during a time of dispute between believers involving the priesthood of Messiah, the composition of the priesthood, the role of the book of the covenant and the book of the law in the community, and believers' relation to the temple, the sacrifice, and the synagogue of Satan. It's the same things we're dealing with, just slightly skewed. But it's the same spirit behind it. It's the same spirit behind it. What is the meaning of life? What is the meaning of life? Life is a burdensome task appointed by Yahweh on the sons of men by which they must be exercised. That's what this life is about. It's a burdensome task that's been appointed by Yahweh upon the sons of men because he wants to exercise us. And he is using this very thing to get us strong. Ecclesiastes 1.13. Isn't that amazing? You've got all these liberal nutjobs out there and Deepak Chokra. What is the meaning of life? Yeah, it's Ecclesiastes 1.13. Can we move on? (laughs) I mean, really. What's the meaning of life? Yahweh has all the answers in his holy Kadosh word, does he not? And we are 
the recipients of that. We don't have to go and see some hippy-dippy doodah to find out what the meaning of life is. We just have to pray and open up his word and he will speak directly to our hearts. And I know our hearts are deceitfully wicked above all things. But he still speaks to those hearts, does he not? What is the timing of this communique? There's a very close relationship to the three letters of Yochanan and the fourth gospel, the gospel of Yochanan. Because the fourth gospel was completed some time before the writing of these three letters of Yochanan, and the beloved disciple was an eyewitness to the events described in the Besorah, the gospel. So the setting, what was the setting? What was going on? Sometime after the writing of the book of John, the fourth gospel, Trouble started to brew within in the Nassene, within the Nassene community of believers in Yahusha. Some people, they'd adopted these strange beliefs about the person and work of Mashiach. And they were at odds with the author and his beliefs. These beliefs involved the denial of Yahusha as Mashiach. These beliefs involved denying that he came in the flesh denying that he was the son of Elohim and that his death was necessary for the forgiveness of sins. Let's call this group the secessionists. That's really what they were. They were called the secessionists. They were at odds with our author. They were an organized group of itinerant Morim teachers Kind of like what we deal with today, these independent Hebrew contractors that just go from congregation to congregation, Shabbat to Shabbat, a couple times a month, teaching whatever they want, making disciples after themselves. And that's what we've seen in the Hebrew Roots movement for over 20 years, independent Hebrew contractors just bouncing around, bouncing around an organized group of itinerant Maureen teachers. You see, that's what was going on at the time of the writing of these epistles. And they had circulated amongst the early Nassene synagogues and propagated their beliefs. Is that what we're experiencing today with the Hebrew contractors? Yeah, circulating along amongst congregations, propagating their beliefs perverted beliefs, propagating their perverted beliefs. And no doubt, they bring confusion to the whole community, leading many Nassines to doubt whether they truly knew Yahuwah. Were they really experiencing eternal life? Were they really in the truth? And many then departed from the faith and went back to the orthodoxy of Judaism denying Messiah. Do you see the parallels that we're fighting with this today? I do. It's astounding. It's astounding. Let's look at the historical situation. Four things. Number one, Yochanan speaks of those who have gone out into the world and do not acknowledge that Yahushua has come in the flesh. Number two, He labels them false teachers, or in the Hebrew, Moshiach Neged, 
anti-Messiahs, anti-Christs. Number three, he places utmost importance on the love command, which was received at the beginning, but a sheet along with the true gospel. And finally, number four, the fourth in the historical situation is thus. He finds his joy knowing that his flock His children, he calls them children. His children are walking in the truth of the gospel. And I can't tell you the joy it brings me to see people coming here from all over the world walking in the truth of the Melchizedek anointing. It's inspiring. It's inspiring. You see, Yochanan Aleph, 1 John, is written as a homily It's written as a sermon to assure them that they were in the truth by providing them with concrete criteria in which they could test the words of the successionists. And I've just provided you likewise with concrete criteria so that you can test the successionists from the Malkitzedic message who've gone out from us and are teaching a perverted form of the Malkitzedic message in esoteric wisdom to create disciples after themselves, but they will not abide by those eight marks of authenticity. You can call them out. Simply, you can't teach the Malkitzedic anointing with a synonymous book of the covenant and book of the law because you bypass the covenants of promise. You're done. You're done. It's a perverted form of the gospel. And I'm going to call it out. I'm not going to put up with it. Why, why would you? Why would you? I've got to look to my wife right now. Because she gives me the looks when I get too fired up. And I get too salty. I had three shots of super male vitality before I came up. Mm. And making my wife blush. If you have tried that stuff, some good gear. You shoot some of that with some espresso. Keeps your testosterone level very high. <laughs> I like it. Where were we? Let's get into Yochanan Bet, Yochanan Gimel. Sorry, sorry. There's a couple of weeks off. Surrounded by heathen, secular heathen. Maybe I've been influenced. No, I haven't. No, I haven't, because I do not wage war against flesh and blood, but principalities, right? They may press, but we have the Ruach HaKodesh that sanctifies us and separates us. Yochanan Bet and Yochanan Gimel. These were then the follow-up letters that were later sent out to the community. The main course of action determined in Yochanan Bet, 2 John, was not to provide hospitality and support for such Maureen, such teachers. And it was addressed to the elect lady 
and her children. That's interesting, as I've read that over the years, and you know we've read that so many times, the elect lady and her children. Or is it lady elector? I mean, how, how, what does it mean? So I want to just spend a couple of minutes, because that's always bothered me, so I, I thought I'd dig into it. Four interpretations of the meaning of elect lady. Number one, it was the lady elector. It referred to a certain Babylonian lady named Electa. Number two, it was a noble Kyria, the noble Kyria. Number three, dear lady, a colorless term of courtesy addressed to some woman that we don't really know. Number four, this is what I believe. Number four, an elect lady and her children was a symbolic reference to the synagogue in a town at some distance from the community center where the author is living. It's a designation of an assembly and its members. I'm going with number four. But these are the four traditional interpretations. Other men then of good repute had gone out from Yochanan's assembly for the sake of the name. You see that in Yochanan Gimel, verse 7, 3 John, verse 7. And these men, did, men needed to be sure that they'd actually receive hospitality as they traveled about. As they traveled about. Yochanan Gimel, 3 John, was written by the elder to an individual called Gaius. That's not a name that you'd want nowadays, is it? Really? You're at Starbucks. Yeah, who's this? Oh, this one's for Gaius. No. Sorry. <laughs> the things that go on in this head of mine sometimes... But in all honesty, it was written, Yochanan Gimel, to the elder, to an individual called Gaius in one of the community's assemblies. He was commended for actually providing hospitality to these traveling Maureen, these traveling teachers, because these teachers were of good standing because they had gone out from Yochanan's assembly. We see this in Yochanan Gimel, verse 5. Now, Gaius is then informed of one called Deithropes. Deithropes, who was a leader, and he was the op in opposition to the elder, this Deithropes. He was in actual opposition to the elder because he rejected his authority and he rejected his leadership in the spiritual community. Deithropes didn't welcome Yochanan in that he didn't accede into his request by Yochanan in the letter. And finally, in these epistles, we end up with the condemnation of Demetrius. The condemnation of Demetrius. But now, let's look at the fourth gospel, the gospel of John, and Giliana revelation for the connections. Because the fourth gospel and revelation and the three letters of Yochanan, I believe, are closely related with similarities you find as you read them all in language, concepts. You find these parallels with words. You find these parallels with ideas and 
the relation that they have to the faith in Messiah and eternal life. If you were to look at John chapter 20 verse 31, you'd find a parallel with 1 John 5.13. And you can start to make these connections as you read through these different texts. So that brings me to who was the author? Who was the author of the epistles of John, the Yochanan Communique? I believe the fourth gospel... The three letters of Yochanan and Giliana, Revelation, are all written by the same person. The apostle, the beloved disciple of Yahushua, Yochanan, the son of Zebedee. The textual witness to Yochanan's authorship is uniform and pervasive throughout all five. You see, the mid-second century writings cite Yochanan's letters... Irenaeus, Polycarp, the Moratorian fragment, Tertullian, Clement of Alexander, Origen, Dionysus of Alexandra, they all deduced that the letters were written by the apostle Yochanan. It's worth mentioning that no ancient manuscripts of Yochanan's epistle do not bear his name. They all bear his name. Now, saying that, I have to acknowledge that some, based upon the writings of Papias, as interpreted by Eusebius in 60 to 70 of the Common Era, consider that there is in fact two Yochanans. Have you ever heard that? Well, where does that come from? Well, it comes from the writings of Papias. But Papias himself didn't say that. It was Eusebius that interpreted that and made that statement from what he read from Papias. There's two apostles. But why did Eusebius want to bring forth that? Because he was an amillennium. Whereas many in the time of the first century believed that the millennium was something that was going to come a thousand years, but not Eusebius. You see, the apostle, he believed that there was two Yochanans, the apostle who wrote the fourth gospel and Yochanan Aleph. And then there was this other character called the elder, another Yochanan who wrote the second and third John and the Revelation. But this all comes from Eusebius. But they came to that understanding based upon external evidence. And what was that external evidence? The writings of Papias. I come to my observations from internal evidence, the internal evidence within the text. And that's how I'm honest up front. That's how I interpret scripture. I would rather work internally within the text rather than use external sources to come to my conclusions. So I look at the text and I see these parallelisms within the language, the concepts, the phrases of Revelation, the Gospel of John, and the three epistles of Yochanan, and I draw my conclusions internally from textual witness that they're the same. The ones that draw that there's two Yochanans, they don't get it from the text. They get it from Papias and the interpretation of Eusebius. So you need to know that to, so then you're making your decision based upon external evidence, which is always sketchy if you ask me, 
or if you're a born-again believer, you're just going to go with the internal evidence, right? Depends whether you're a liberal believer or an orthodox believer. An orthodox believers, we hold to what? Sola Scriptura, right? Because we're the real believers. I just came back from England. Come on, I'm with the dead church where you've got... Oh my goodness, talk about external evidence. Because they're not into the internal witness of the word because it would condemn them for the lifestyles that they are living. Right? Exactly. I look at the parallels in language, concepts, words, and ideas rather than the later tradition and external evidence. You see, no early theologians prior to Eusebius in 300 of the Common Era, Eusebius, like I said, interpreting Papias, proposed the existence of a second Yochanan. Eusebius needed someone named Yochanan to whom he could attribute the book of Revelation. That's why he did it, because Eusebius, under Origen's influence, had embraced a millennialism, which is the presiding belief that the 1,000 years is metaphorical. It's not literal, and that you're in this present age of 1,000 years until Messiah comes back. That's really what a millennialism is. Whereas most understood revelation at that time in millennium terms. Eusebius invented the non-apostolic Yochanan, and then he imputed revelation to him. I remember having these conversations when I was at Calvary Chapel, and nobody could explain this stuff to me. But I'd heard about, you know, there was one, well, then there was, you know. But nobody had just spent the time, so, well, it came from Papias, because he believed in amillennialism. I mean, how complicated is that? It's really not, is it? And now we know. It's external evidence, and we can make our own decisions. That's what I love about the faith, is that we do this, and we just, just tell the truth. And then we make our own decisions. We don't keep this secret knowledge to ourselves with a Hebrew guy in our back pocket to keep you guys down here. Well, I've got my Hebrew guy. What's his name, Gaius? <laughs> Crying out loud. How Gaius is that? Hi, honey. (laughs) She's going to be rough with me tonight. Let's look at the situation in Giliana, Revelation 2.1. Let's see how it reflects what's going on in Yochanan's letters in several ways. Because you can see why so many, before Yesupias came along, with his interpretation of Papias, how many, so many believe that all five books, the Gospel of John, the fourth Gospel, Revelation, and the three Yochanan communique, everyone believed that they were written by Yochanan the Beloved, the Apostle, the disciple of Yahushua. Revelation chapter 2, Yahushua, what does he do? He praises the assembly for their diligence. And then we see Yochanan does the same in 1 John chapter 2. Yahushua scolds the Ephesians because they're what? 
their lovelessness. Yochanan reflects upon the very same theme in 2 John chapter um, 2 John 3, excuse me, and 3 John verse 6. Both Revelation chapter 2 verse 5 and 1 John 2 verse 28 use Mashiach's return as a spur for what? His return is a spur for moral urgency, is it not? As it is today. He's coming. We better be clean on the inside of the cup, had we not? That's a moral urgency. You don't want to be caught doing that. When he comes back, now's the time to clean up your life. Because there were deceivers. There were spiritually unscrupulous men that were at work in Ephesus and in Yochanan's epistles that were circulating. Where were, where were Yochanan's epistles circulating? As with Revelation, around Ephesus. This is all within the text, you see, where you get this evidence. Look at Revelation. Let's turn there. Giliana chapter 2, verse 1. Unto the teaching overseer of the congregation of Ephesia, Ephesus, write, These things, says he, that holds the seven kokavim stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden menorah. So you'll notice we do not emblazon the star of Rafam up here. Okay? We do not have the star of Rafam commonly called the Star of David back here. Because the symbol of our faith, we just read it. But if you depart from the faith, watch out, the menorah will be removed from your congregations. It will be replaced with the Star of Rafam or a crucifix. But when you return to the true faith, you'll embrace the menorah as the symbol of the faith. So if you're really doing the Torah, then get rid of the star of Rafam. Stop replacing the name of Yahuwah with Adonai. Because that's not biblical. You see the hypocrisy? It is. I don't know if I'm particularly gifted or if you guys are particularly gifted, but I can cut right through the nonsense so easily. It's called discernment. And the lack of discernment that you see within the body of Messiah is absolutely outrageously scary. And then those of us that have the discernment, we're like, chung, 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 chung. You just, easy navigation, is it not? It's easy navigation. As people are stumbling and bumbling to the left and to the right, you've got to have the discernment. But with discernment comes great responsibility does it not brother John great responsibility because you've got to learn as I'm learning when to temper it and when to let it go because there has to be a balance and you know what I admit I tend to let it go a lot more than I should and I most probably should temper it and chill a bit more So I'm trying to grow up as well. But if you'd have seen me 20 years ago, you'd be amazed at what Yahushua's done in my life. So be patient with me, because I do have a lot of faults, just as you guys do as well. Mine are most probably more obvious to see. But it's amazing that he can use someone like me 
and someone like you. And that's what we're thankful for, right? That's what we're thankful for. He takes the foolish of the world and he puts those of the wisdom, the wise, to shame. So it's amazing as we look now, Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. I know your mitzvot and your labor and your endurance and how you can't bear those who are evil. And you have tried them who say they are shlechim, apostles, and are not, and found them to be liars. We should put in there Levites. And you have found those that say they are Levites and are not and have found them to be lying mamas and have borne and have endurance for my name's sake, and have labored and have not fainted. Nevertheless, I have something against you, because you have left your first love. You've left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you are fallen, and make teshuvah. I remember being at like a Hebrew conference down in Florida, and there was somebody who had an accent similar to yours. Where's yours from? Your accent, yes. Uh, Missouri, Texas, Arkansas. Arkansas. It's the Arkansas bit. And instead of Teshuvah, he's like, and we, this is how he said it, in an Arkansas accent. I'll do it for you. It was brilliant. Where it was brilliant? Where is it? We said, and he came forth and he went with the Teshfu, yay! And everyone's like, what? And he kept on saying, and everybody needs to Teshfu, yay! We're like, oh, buddy. That's how they do it in Arkansas, you know. Get, our, get these Anglicans or these Americans and give us a little bit of Hebrew and you end up with Teshvu Yay instead of Teshuva. <laughs> I'm going to make some Teshvu Yay today. <laughs> That's why I had to ask you, brother, when we're having hot dogs tomorrow, I'm like, you know, I've got to make sure that they're kosher. <laughs> you know. You know, you're from Arkansas. You got catfish and right possum. Bloody outrageous, isn't it? I think Hosea said something about those kind of eating habits, didn't he? I think he did. I really do. Yes, and Job said the same thing. Can you make something clean come out of the unclean? No. Well, that's. Stick that one with the Peter and the vision and the sheet, right? No, you cannot make something clean come out of the unclean. So the catfish is still unclean. All right. Can we, let's get back into the actual word here, Matthew. Verse 3. And you have borne have, have endurance for my name's sake and have labored. It was the teshuva that threw me off. And have not fainted. Nevertheless, I have something against you because you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen and make teshuva and do the first mitzvot. Or else I will come to you quickly and I will remove your menorah out of its place unless you make teshuva. But this you have, that you hate the wicked deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. You know that pyramidal system with one guy up the top who's got all the esoteric secret knowledge, special genealogy, and the rest of you are just a bunch of lay people. We hate that, I hate that, and you should hate that too. Now, what is the date as we get into this wonderful, wonderful 
Yochanan communique. Well, it was the early part of the last decade of the first century. We know that the apostle spent his latter days in Ephesus, so then these letters were sent from Ephesus to the Yochanite community of assemblies in the region around Ephesus who were being infiltrated by the secessionists. We know sometime during or after the writing of the letters of Yochanan, the beloved disciple, he died. Yochanan chapter 21 verse 33. It was only later that scribes began to revise and add to the fourth gospel and circulate it in the form that we see it today. Who was the audience of the Yochanan communique? Well, they were Hellenized Jews and they were fellow Israelites from Asia along with some sojourners, Gentiles, in a predominant predominantly Jewish community. These letters are written to and for an isolationist sect whose leader, Yochanan, is dealing with internal problems, not external ones. In fact, there's some very strong similarities between Yochanan Aleph, 1 John, and Qumran. The parallels between Yochanan Aleph and the Dead Sea Scrolls are quite astounding. A Jewish sectarian writer like that at Qumran, you find the Manual of Discipline in Qumran 1QS. What do you find? You find light and darkness, truth and deceit, the division of people into two groups. And that's what we're seeing today. We've got the Malkitzedic priesthood over here in lightness, and then we've got those going the other way in the Levitical hierarchy, and it's getting darker and darker and darker. It is. I've watched it over the past decade. started out with kind of Hebraic fun, you know? But it's got darker and darker as more and more have infiltrated the darkness. So we see that people are divided into two groups, the sons of light and the sons of darkness. And there's two spirits, two ruachim too, the ruach of truth and the ruach of deceit, the spirit of darkness and the spirit of light and the angels or princes of light and the angels and the princes of darkness. Yes, we have brotherly love. Yes, we have community. Yes, we have knowledge. Yes, we're to have confession of sin. And finally, yes, we're to get rid of those idols. And this is what we see within the Dead Sea Scroll community has a direct influence of thought on the Yochanan communique. It truly does. And in fact, if you were to read, I have it at home, I hope you do too, the Epistle of Barnabas, chapter 5, verses 9 through 11, you'll see similarities there too. I don't have to get into it, but Yochanan Aleph knows Barnabas. And the standout verse, the standout verse to me, Yahushua came, not by water only, but by water and blood. That is, Yahushua not only got immersed into the Malkit Zedek, having an immersing ministry, but he also died as the Malkit Zedek, having an atoning sacrificial ministry. And that's what the Levitical hierarchy is bypassing and circumnavigating. 
Let's look at this successionist movement and what they were up to and eight points. Eight points of the successionist movement that we were dealing with with the Yokonan communique. Number one, they claim. They claim to know Elohim, yet Yokonan responds with, if we claim to have fellowship with him, yet we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not have the truth. The successionist behavior exposes them, does it not? It exposes them. Number two, they make claims of sinlessness to which Yochanan responds, if we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives. Number three, the successionist, the person of Messiah, They teach errors in the composition of the person of Messiah. It's called Christology. To which Yochanan responds, who is a liar? It is the man who denies that Yahusha is Moshiach. Such a man is Moshiach Neged, Antichrist. He denies the Abba and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father Also, in the Hebrew roots and Messianic community, you've got teachers who deny that Yahusha is the Messiah coming out with teachings, no God. You don't know the Father. You don't know God if you deny the Son. That's what my Bible teaches. How can you sit and listen to that? Buy those CDs, stream that stuff when you know what the Word says. How can you do that? Because the Ruach HaKodesh is not convicting you inside. Well, how is it that the Ruach HaKodesh convicts me and other brothers know that you can't do that? Do you have the Ruach HaKodesh? That's the question that I have to ask. That's the question. Because it is Ruach and Emet. That's what Torah is. It is spirit and truth, and the Ruach guides us in the Torah. And if you haven't got the Ruach, you're going to fall headlong into the Torah of the rabbis, and you're going to have somebody teaching you to know God who denies Yahusha as the Messiah. It's the blind leading the blind, and you will both fall into the ditch of Rabbi Richmond and the Temple Institute that they are digging right now. Right now, in preparation for November. Just as we're dealing with the elections and preparation for November. We've got a long, dry, hot summer ahead of us. You better be watered in the word, because you might not make it to Sukkot. It's some serious, it's serious time for admonishing the brethren. Yeah, I do not take this faith lightly. I do not take this faith lightly. The successionist denied Yahusha came in the flesh. Number four, Yochanan refutes their teaching when he says, this is the one who came by water and blood, Yahusha HaMashiach. The secessionists denied Yahusha came by blood. That is the importance of Yahusha's atoning death. They didn't acknowledge it. 
Number five, the successionists don't show love to fellow believers. Yochanan writes, whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. He does not know where he's going because the darkness, it has blinded him. And number six, what was important to the successionists was their own personal experience with Elohim or their koinonia with him. And human relationships, well, they weren't very important at all. It's all about me and God. Number seven, they de-emphasized the incarnation and vicarious death of Yahushua and the resulting de-emphasizing of the commandments of Yahushua too. And finally, number eight, they were, in fact, doicists. Doicists, from the Greek, it means to seem. From dokesis, meaning an apparition or like a ghost. They believed that Yahushua was really mere semblance without any true reality. That Yahushua only seemed to be human. He was an apparition or kind of like a ghost. His human form was an illusion. He was like a phantom. And that's why Yahushua said to Thomas, Stick your finger in my side. And he even ate and drank in his glorified body, did he not? To put to rest this docetic movement that had infiltrated during the first century. So as we conclude with this introduction and this exciting, exciting journey that we're about to go on, this Yochanan community of faith, like our community of faith today, we are a number, like they were, of closely related assemblies who are operating in fellowship with the author and with these letters. And we're excited. We have other assemblies that are in cooperation with me and the others here. Here, the team here at Torah to the Tribes. We have a Torah to the Tribes happening down in Texas um, for um, Sukkot, and we're going to be having many other people that are bringing forth this wonderful, wonderful teaching because what we're finding, just like the Yochanan community, that we become closely related over this Malkitzedic message, and we fellowship with one another just like they fellowship with the author at the time of the writing of these letters. So the letters of Yochanan were being sent to warn them of the danger that was represented by the successionist movements. And through the live stream, we've been able to send out the danger that is represented through the Levitical hierarchy and the synagogue of Satan that has infiltrated the Hebrew roots and Messianic movement. No different today. We're just in the third prophetic wheel with such an anointed calling on each and every one of your lives to be able to have a blood-tipped ear to hear what is going out in these last days. They all shared a common community rule with that rule being the type of belief laid out in the fourth gospel. They were a Jewish-Israelite community that reached out to other Jews in the dispersion. There were Hellenized Israelites amongst them. And let's be honest, we've been Hellenized, Right? You can't say you haven't been Hellenized. Just admit it. What the hell exactly? 
We've been Hellenized. We have. We've been, we have been affected by the culture, but we're coming out of the culture. Somebody, the Hellenized one today, is like, I was adjusting these. They're like, oh, I bet you were good with the Christmas tree lights. <laughs> like, blimmin' heck, I'm trying to do the backdrop for crying Christmas tree lights. See, you're Hellenized, bloody heathen. See, it's not far from your back doorstep, is it? Let's look at the five-fold thrust of Yochanan's letters. Number one, Yahweh is light, is he not? He is light. Number two, Yahweh is love. Number three, Yahweh is revealed as the father of Yahusha Hamashiach. And you don't know one without the other. And number four, eternal life does await you. The Zadiks, the Zadiks. And number five, atonement or hilasmos in the Greek is the only means of obtaining it, is it not? So it's time for an authentic faith. It's time for an authentic conversion experience. And that grows, brethren, out of right belief. It grows out of right belief, and then that brings forth an obedience to the commandments. Sinful persons will naturally be foreign to this message. Sinful persons will naturally be foreign to the Malkitzedic anointing. They'll be naturally foreign to purity, to beauty, and the transformative power that's contained within it. Uniting souls that were once estranged is what we're seeing with this ministry and that, to me, is inspirational. The recipients of these letters, in closing, they faced what we face today. They faced what we face today. They can neither go backwards. They can neither go forwards. They can neither go backwards into Judaism or forward into the Greco-Roman world. But rather, they must carve out a narrow path as a Malkitzedic sect indebted to both realms, yet identifying with neither because of a commitment to Yahusha as the Malkitzedic and the Book of the Covenant Torah as community rule, we find ourselves on that narrow road. And it is a hard road to walk, is it not? It truly is. I'm so excited. Next week, Yochanan Aleph, chapter 1. That was the introduction, but you know I like to do that because we've got to set the foundation. Questions, comments at all? Yes. I was just curious. Is this on? There okay. is I now. was just curious if you, uh, what parallels you would draw between the Herodian temple and the upcoming temple being built now. The parallels, believe, well, again, the Herodian temple back in the day, it didn't have, it wasn't according to the Torah, was it? 
It was pervert in so many ways. It didn't have the furniture. It didn't have the correct priesthood. They weren't doing things according to the Torah. And likewise, this future temple, it's not going to be according to the pattern that is laid out either in the Torah or laid out even in the book of Ezekiel. And I don't even believe that Ezekiel is millennial, but 13 stamped and dated scrolls. So again, it's another perversion of the hands of men trying to get that hierarchy and trying to lead people into a religion. So you jump out of one religion and you jump into the fire of another religion. You exchange a crucifix with a star of Rapham, a star of David. It doesn't make sense to me. You exchange a monk's robe for a a tallit. I mean, I don't understand it. I really don't. Uh, I was just going to say that uh, me and my brother and Brandon... Is that your brother? Yeah. No, I knew that. <laughs> you're only we, twins, right? No, we're not twins. You're we're not twins? Apart, but, uh, you look like you're but twins. But we've been called anti-Semitic from Messianic... You've been called anti-Semitic? From Messian- people oh, in Messianic Judaism for, for preaching the Melchizedek message and for uh, you know speaking against things like the star... You know, and uh, just talking about priesthood and covenant and what's Torah and what's not. And we've been just called anti-Semitic. Welcome to to liberal religious people because they try to use these words. It's no different than you're seeing with Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. You try and use these catch keywords to shut people down from truth. (gasps) Racist. Anti-Semitic. Okay. And, and, it, and people are going to shut down. No. Cowards will shut down. But not if you've got the truth. Because the reality is, the Ashkenazi is a son of Gomer, who's a son of Japheth, and not related to Shem at all. So where's your Shemetic now? It's anti-Japhethetic. <laughs> When you mentioned uh, denying the Son, what did you exactly mean by that? When it says in the Scripture to deny the Son or deny the Father or the Son, what, it, what does that exactly mean, to deny the Son? To deny the Son, what does that mean? It means to deny that He is the atoning sin sacrifice of atonement, or in the Greek, the chlasmos, that can bring forth your redemption. You're denying that he is the bosom of Yahuwah, the flesh of Yahuwah, that was torn out and walked amongst the sons of men to complete the work of chlasmos atonement. That he is the Moshiach. By denying that, you cut off your access to atonement, therefore you are lost. You deny the Son, you do not have access to the Father, because the Father cannot be defiled by your sin, and it is only the helasmos, the atonement, the keporim in the Hebrew. So you've got the keporim, the covering atonement, at one or the Greek helasmos that you need. Yes. I heard the other day um, uh, well I can only remember a name this way. Chico Martez. I heard him 
Oh, Rico. Yeah, Rico. Rico Cortez. There you go. I, I heard him uh, speaking the other day because... I'm oh, sorry. <laughs> Come on. That was I'm a... trying to be responsible up here. You guys well, don't make it easy for me, but let's go. It's all like the cat's out of the bag. Brother, you've just made these brothers' life this week now. Do you know how tough? I was Forget just... armor. They're going to need bulletproof <laughs> vests. Brother John is looking at me like, oh, uh, no. Oh, sorry. Um, <laughs> one of the things Send. that I... Send. What, One of the things that I heard or did not hear, and I don't know if this is how others would want to argue the Levitical process, but I don't hear them talk about the... Um, uh, the, the the calf the the golden calf the that was done and that changed it all they yeah. i've never heard or i didn't hear that guy with the hat I, I didn't hear him discuss that and i was wondering do others that would want to uh talk about the melchizedek and whether it's true or not do they ever address that at all well, you see, that's the key. And even, you, it's very disingenuous. People are very disingenuous in portraying um, their, their dogma and their doctrine because it's a picking and a choosing. It's no different than what we did in the institutionalized church where we would pick and choose which commandments to do. You can't pick and choose what commandments to do. You have to live by covenant. Everything that's contained in the covenant you have to do. So if you believe in a division of the book of the law and the book of the covenant, which happened at the golden calf, even the rabbis, and I'll only quote the rabbis when it behooves me, even the rabbis, I believe um, Rashi, even will, will tell you that they believe that everything the temple the tabernacle was a result of the sin of the golden calf. The Yahweh's plan was not to do that, but was to make a nation of priests and have his temple within them, Exodus 19 to 24, 11. Even the Jewish sages will acknowledge that, but people are disingenuous because they won't even let you know that. So... Again, picking and choosing. If you're really going to go with an undivided Torah, and you're going to say Torah is five books, then you need to be authentic and do every commandment from Genesis 1 to the end of Deuteronomy, which includes animal sacrifices today on Shabbat. You have no excuse. You can't say, well, I've got to wait for some Ashkenazi to build a temple. Where is that verse that says that you can do that? Yahweh says, you do not delay in building me a house while you go and build your own houses. You don't have that excuse. So it is unauthentic. If you have a problem, you don't go to see your psychiatrist. You don't take your antidepressive meds. You're supposed to go and see a Levite priest. You're not doing that stuff, so you're picking and choosing no different than when you're in the church. Yet, we keep all of the commandments within the book of the covenant. All of the Torah commandments, every single one. Because it's within the covenant. It's the rightly dividing point. There is no picking and choosing. There is no hypocrisy. 
The hypocrisy you learned from picking and choosing that you're doing in the Hebrew roots and messianic movement, you drag with you from the institutionalized church. Because if you're authentic, you'll start slicing and dicing animals on Shabbat and you won't make an excuse for it. But you can't because you're hypocrites. So there. You see, the iron broom has come to the stable and now you've unleashed it. And it's exciting because truth divides, does it not? But you know, didn't need to bring up the fella's name. I mean, now you just put salt in the wound. Is that your dad? See, all oh, right, we're, you go, would you keep an eye on your father? He's on holiday. Is this what happens when you take him on holiday? Yeah, we can take more questions. People are bouncing right now anyway, they're like, well. Yes, now don't, just because you're black, don't give me some racist stuff, okay? All right? Crying out loud. Stop it. <laughs> hey, bro, uh, I've been, ever since we've did, uh, done the Hebrew, the, uh, the Hebraic teaching, I've been really going through the Septuagint uh, uh, more often. Yes. But I've been told that the Septuagint is not reliable. How, well, how would I deal with that? Because well, I believe that the Septuagint is very reliable. Okay, well, let's, let's examine the evidence, okay? That's a great question. The Masoretic text, in comparison, was written in about 900, Okay. And it's a very new text in comparison by the Masoretes. Whereas the Septuagint was translated by 70, some say 72, 70 in excess, of the top Orthodox Jews at that time that were picked by the Jews. They believed that they were the best of the best. 70 or 72 of them that translated out of the Hebrew, the ancient Hebrew that we don't have in existence today. And it was checked by 72 and authenticated as the document for not only Judea and Jerusalem, but the dispersion too. And there it was authenticated and dispersed and validated for 200, over 200 years. It's only now when believers in Yahushua start using it that people are like, oh, well, no, it's not, it's not, uh, it's not, it's not kosher. <laughs> we go with the Textus Receptus and the Masoretic Text. And you're like, well, there's at least 134 high-handed, deliberate changes by the Masoretes removing Yahushua as the Mashiach, Psalm 110, verse 1 and verse 4 and 5. Exactly. Yeah, there's so many. So the proof is in the pudding. 70 plus 2 of your highest linguists were chosen. Yeah, the Septuagint's bomb-proof, as far as I'm concerned, and history is concerned. Yes. Uh, so uh, this kind of confirms on the Melchizedek teaching also. Um, Ezekiel 44. So I'm just going to read a couple of passages from it. It says, And the Levites who went far from me when Yashrael went astray, who strayed away from me and their, after their idols, they shall bear their crookedness. 
and they were attendants in my set-apart place as gatekeepers of the house and attendants of the house, slaying the ascending offerings and slaughtering for the people and standing before them to attend them. Because they attended them before their idols and became a stumbling block and crookedness to the house of Yisrael, therefore I have lifted my hand in an oath against them, declares the master Yahuwah, that they shall bear their crookedness and not come near me to serve my priests, nor come near any of that which is set apart to me, nor into the most set apart place, and they shall bear their shame and their abominations which they have done. Yet I shall make them those who guard the duty of the house for all its work, for all that has been to be done in it. But the priests, the Levites, the sons of Zedok, who guarded the duty of my set-apart place when the children of Yeshua went astray from me, they shall draw near to me and serve me and shall stand before me and bring me the fat and the blood, declares Master Yahuwah. Exactly. So really, as we can see just through the writing right there of Ezekiel, that the Levites are fit to clean the dung out of the stable, but they cannot touch the kadosh, kadosh things. They can shovel and in the stable. That's really what it is. That's the reality. That's brutal, but that's what it is. There's a, we're all, everybody's going to be resurrected, some to wrath and judgment and some to eternal life. We're all going to walk through the fire, but those that are wicked will be burnt to ashes and become ash under the feet of the Malkizedics, the feet of the righteous. Brother in the back, looking very marine-ish back there. You've been on the weights? Just a little. Just a little, little, yeah. So, yeah, we close in prayer. Thank you, before it gets out of control. And another holiday maker brings up another name. All right. Baruch Hashem Yahweh. Oh, hallelujah. It's fun though, isn't it? It is. It is. It's a lot of fun being in the front lines. It's a lot of fun. I mean, you've got you've to be able to take the rough with the smooth, put a lot of oil in the old hair so the rubs off like a duck, you know? Anyway, Baruch Hashem Yahweh, Abba, we thank you for Shabbat. Kadosh, Kadosh, Kadosh le Yahweh. O Yahweh, Yahweh Elohim. Merciful, gracious, and long-suffering, abounding in goodness and truth, who extends mercy to thousands, forgiver of iniquity, transgression, and sin, who by no means clears the guilty, but forgives, visits the sins of the fathers upon the children's children to the third and fourth generation. O Yahweh, we pray for your rachamin, your mercy upon this generation, that Abba Yahweh, that you would now keep us in the covenants of promise, that we may go forth, Abba, into the multiplicity of these last days of blessing in Yahusha's mighty, mighty name, B'Shem Yahweh.